0: Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here, and thanks for being here on your spring break. Appreciate it. Glad you're here. Um, I had the privilege and joy of spending a little time with Dodie Wyland uh, in the hospital in uh, her last days before she passed away, and and uh, one of the she asked me to pass this along to our church, to you guys. She just said, "Please tell the church how thankful I am for them and how I have felt so loved." By this church, and so please pass that on, and then she said, "Keep preaching the word and so uh so, yeah, uh, I told her I would pass that on to you, and you know <clears throat> oh, I was telling somebody this we've had a few memorial services here recently, and I think we were talking at staff meeting about one of the one of the best reasons to attend memorial services um, besides supporting the family is is uh Learning, I would say, to to come and learn, um, either good or bad. What what can you take away from a person's life? And as I think about Don and Dodie, it, you know, one of the things that we can learn from them is obviously that a great love for the Lord. But they were, they were unashamed about their faith. Um, they were whether they were doing missions internationally or here, uh, in our own community. They really, they really were concerned with spreading the gospel uh, to their neighbors and to future generations. And, and we saw that as a priority in their lives um, until they went to be with the Lord. And, and that kind of blends into our conversation this morning, which I was gonna start with this question. When was the last time that you had a substantial conversation about God with a non-believer? When was the last time that that you told somebody, you had an opportunity to talk with somebody about who Jesus is and what he has uh, done in your life? You know, in in one sense, sharing the gospel is very straightforward and simple uh, because the gospel is all about Jesus and what he did to save his people. So who who is Jesus? Jesus is God, right? Jesus is specifically God the Son. He's the Savior of the world. And, And what did he do to save his people? Jesus left heaven and came to earth. He took on human flesh. He lived among us a perfect life without sin. Jesus suffered on the cross. He died in our place, the suffering and death we deserve to die. And three days later, Jesus rose from his death just like he said he would. And 40 days later, Jesus ascended to heaven where he now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, ruling over all things and waiting for the appointed time to return to earth to judge the living and the dead. That is, that's the core of the gospel. And, and everyone who believes it, why is it called the gospel? Why is it good news? Because everybody who believes it and puts their faith in Jesus is united to him and has eternal life in him. That's why it's good news. And this is the same gospel message that the apostles proclaimed 2,000 years ago. And this is the same gospel message uh, that will be proclaimed until Jesus returns. It's very straightforward and simple and even children can understand it. And, um, and as we as a church and as individuals prayerfully seek to make more disciples of Jesus, this message of Jesus, this good news about him, is the message we must proclaim. And while we want to share this message with nonbelievers, um, what we'll find, I think, is we're most often gonna have spiritual conversations with non-believers in which we we should also hear their stories and their beliefs also. Listening to the stories of non-believers uh, is extremely helpful because <clears throat> it helps us understand where they're coming from. It helps us understand their cultural context and how they have been shaped to, to see the world and to think about things like truth and God. Uh, for instance, if you're talking to a teenager in Washington State in 2019, uh, then be mindful of the fact that the world they've grown up in is very different than the world many of us grew up in. They've never lived in a world without iPhones and Netflix and Facebook and two-day Amazon Prime delivery and Twitter and Instagram and Spotify, okay? A few decades ago, you could assume that a teenager had probably seen an actual Bible before and maybe even opened it up, but that's not the case anymore. And teenagers are wrestling with ideas uh, related to truth and reality in a different way because of their context than many of us did when we grew up in a different historical context in America. Um, Are my online friendships real? Is that reality? What really is true? Is truth whatever Wikipedia says it, it is? This user-edited encyclopedia, which has replaced a lot of encyclopedias that we use. Is truth whatever the news says? Can I trust the news? Is truth whatever I want it to be? And, and, and then having a spiritual conversation with a teenager who's grown up in that cultural context is very different from, from the way that you're going to speak with a middle-aged man from the American South. This man may have very likely attended vacation Bible school when he was growing up. Maybe he accepted Jesus in his heart when he was five years old, and now 40 years later, he he believes in his heart that he will go to heaven even though there's very little evidence in his life that he's been born again. He goes to church because everyone else around him goes to church. It's what good people do. But inside his heart... This man might have no real desire for God. He wants the heaven that God offers, but he doesn't actually want to become like Jesus. And how you talk to that guy about the gospel is gonna be different than how you speak to somebody you know, from, let's say, South Asia, whose culture and spirituality are tied up with concepts of shame and honor in a way that is very different from our culture. Um, instead of first talking about Jesus as being your guilt bearer, you might begin by describing Jesus as your shame-bearer. Jesus is the Savior who takes away all of your shame and makes you eternally honorable in God's sight. So, so each of our upbringings, each of our traditions and our, our cultural contexts shape the way that we view the world around us, the way that we think about truth, and the way that we think about God. And often, we will talk to non-believers in a way that's most helpful to them when we listen to them with love, and then identify ways that the good news of Jesus meets them where they are. Just like it meets us where we're at, and it met us when we first heard it. And this is what the Apostle Paul and his mission team did when they brought the gospel to many different types of people in many different cultures. Um, They not only proclaimed the gospel, but also they listened to people's stories, and they answered people's questions. In the passage we're gonna look at this morning, Paul has these sorts of spiritual conversations with people. uh, And in this context that we're looking at today, it's in the context of a large, culturally diverse city. And Paul shows us how we can have Bible-saturated conversations with non-Christians and explain what it means to follow Jesus as our king. Okay, so if you have your Bible with you, open up with me to Acts 17, to 19. Excuse me, Acts 17, to 9. We'll start at verse one there. Before we read this, let's, let's ask the Lord to help us. Dear Lord, we... Just thank you um, for this opportunity to open your word and to be here today. Uh, You are the one true God, worthy of our lives and our worship. Thank you for laying down your life to rescue and purchase people from all cultures, people, groups, and, and nations on the earth. We just ask that you would help us, Lord, to know you more, help us to have conversations with people about you and your awesomeness and your salvation. We thank you for the grace that you give us, God. We thank you that uh, you've appointed this text for us and ask that you would feed us what we need today. Nourish us, Lord. Please protect us from evil. Shape our hearts and our minds in the likeness of Christ now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's start at Acts 17, 1-2. Now, when they had passed through... Amphipolis and Apollonia, I think I got those, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So a few things to notice about just those first couple verses. First, uh, Paul and his team had just left, where were they coming from, you remember? philippi right and and they were likely traveling along this famous roman road called the via ignatia i think we have a map we can show you here and so they were up here in philippi right they're in modern day greece here and they pass by Amphipolis and apollonia and then they come to thessalonica so i'll just show you that to remember these are real places and um Thessalonica is there still today, obviously. But uh, it was a very influential city in Greece, and it was the capital of the region of Macedonia. Thessalonica had a population of about 200,000 people, and that was a, a really massive town. Compare that to where they just came from. Philippi had about 15,000, okay? And we got letters to both of those churches in our New Testament. Well, the author Luke says that when Paul came to Thessalonica, uh, Paul found... A, uh, a synagogue of the Jews there and he went in on the Sabbath and he began teaching people about Jesus and, and when we re- read that we've got to sometimes the Bible packs a lot into a very short amount of time but, so what you need to do is, is we, we should pause and recognize that Paul's courage and perseverance in preaching the gospel is really breathtaking here Remember, it was just a few days earlier that Paul had been attacked by a mob for telling them about Jesus, right? He was beaten violently with rods. He was locked up in jail in shackles and stocks. But just like many times before, God's grace was sufficient for Paul in his suffering. And God sustained Paul with peace and joy in the middle of those horrible circumstances. And now, having just been freed from that horrible circumstance, Paul immediately jumps into another potentially dangerous ministry situation. And so, so Paul's boldness, his drive to share the gospel with lost people, was obviously fueled by the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, l- and we should pray, right? That God would give us boldness and courage uh, like Paul. This has been one of the ongoing themes in in Acts. Lord, would you give me the same boldness to share the gospel for the sake of the people I'm talking to, for the sake of my own sanctification, and for the glory of your name. Well, let's see what happened here in Thessalonica. Acts 17, 2 to 4 says, and, and Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So more than any passage that we've read so far in Acts, this passage describes in detail how Paul had gospel conversations with non-believers. Uh, Paul went into the synagogue, and then look at all of the actions that Paul did. Paul reasoned, Paul explained, Paul proved, and Paul proclaimed. So let's take each one of those one at a time. First, Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. Uh, th- that he reasoned with them means that he addressed his audience with reason. Christianity is not an unreasonable belief system. On the contrary, it's a belief system based upon reason and objective truth claims and historical facts. It is not a spiritual leap into the darkness in the absence of reliable information. Okay? And in addition to reasoning with them, Paul was explaining to them the necessity of Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, This means that he was explaining, he was essentially expounding Scripture for them. He was was doing what I'm doing right now. He was taking passages of Scripture and explaining what they mean. And, And Paul is explaining Scripture in a way, in this context, that anticipated and responded to the specific objections his audience would have had with Jesus and with the gospel of Jesus. See, Paul understood his context. He he, he was a student of the culture. And so specifically, the Jews believed that God would send a Christ, a savior, but they did not believe that the Christ would die on a cross or rise from the dead. They believed and still do believe that the Christ will come as a conquering king and will establish a powerful earthly kingdom. And so the idea of a cross, <laughs> the, 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 the most horrific and shameful death the Roman Empire had come up with, uh, as that being the means by which the Son of God uh, is lifted high and proclaimed the king. That made no sense to the Jews. And so what Paul did is he explained the Old Testament scriptures to them, their own scriptures. Uh, He showed them from passages, most likely like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, that yes, the Christ must suffer and die and rise again to save his people. Yes, yeah, the Christ will be a conquering king, but not in the way that you're expecting. The, The Christ would be a far greater king than the Jews thought. And then in addition to explaining the scripture to his audience, Paul, it says he was proving the necessity of Jesus' death and resurrection to them. So Paul was demonstrating to his audience the validity of the, the, validity of the argument that Jesus of Nazareth is God. He says, this Jesus, right? Because Jesus was a really common name. And so this Jesus I'm talking about, this Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. And um, he was—he was talking. He was—he talk- was, uh, was telling them that, that this is a valid argument. He showed it from the scriptures. And then it's not unlikely that as he explained this at the end of his teaching, Paul welcomed questions. And Paul would have used scripture to answer people's questions. And then through all of this, Paul was proclaiming the message of Jesus to these Jews and to these God-fearers here in Thessalonica. So all of this is part of the proclamation. He's proclaiming that the Christ, God's savior, who had to suffer and rise from the dead was this Jesus of Nazareth, that God had come, he was rejected and condemned by the Jews. He was crucified, buried, and three days later rose from the dead and appeared to many different people. So we can learn here um, from Paul some important things about how to have spiritual conversations with non-believers. And um, what this text shows us is that it's very helpful to grow in our ability to use scripture to reason with people, to explain the scriptures with people, to prove the scriptures, and to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Um, In other words, we wanna learn how to be humble, loving apologists for Jesus. Being an apologist doesn't mean we're sorry for something. Okay, that's what it sounds like. But an apologist is someone who promotes and defends something. A Christian apologist is someone who promotes the gospel and defends the gospel. And being a Christian apologist uh, not only means uh, reasoning, explaining, and, and proving why the gospel is true, which is called positive apologetics, but it also involves reasoning, explaining, and revealing the problems and inconsistencies in worldviews that oppose the gospel. That's called negative apologetics. And let me just make three brief points about Christian apologetics. First, apologetics cannot save people eternally. However, apologetics can point non-Christians to the Savior, which is very important. So reasoning and explanation and proofs can help us understand in our minds why Christianity is a reasonable worldview. However, open minds are not enough to save us. We, we need to be born again. We need faith in Jesus. God wants our hearts. He wants our souls. He wants people to love him and to trust him. And, and this means that Christians do not merely know the data of the gospel. Right? You do not have to be a believer to know everything about the, the information of the gospel. The difference is, as Christians, we trust in the living person of Jesus Christ who is resurrected and reigning and returning again. So all, apologetics can't make people believe or save people eternally. However, apologetics can point non-Christians to the Savior. Second, We wanna provide safe and loving environments in which we can have spiritual conversations with non-Christians. It is of the utmost importance that these environments are characterized from our end as believers by patience and kindness and humility and love. It does not matter if you know all the right doctrine and you can out-argue every non-Christian you know. If you don't talk to them with respect and patience and kindness and humility and love, then you're not loving them the way Jesus wants you to. You know, you can win an argument and still be the loser. That, that's the reality. And of course, it's okay to be passionate. Oh my goodness, when I start talking about Jesus to those who don't believe, I gotta be careful because I get passionate because this is like the most precious thing to me However, we want to accompany our passion with love and concern and respect for people regardless of what they believe. And many people will be open to hearing the gospel not because of the rightness of your arguments but because of the way you love them. Hear that? Many people will be open to hearing the gospel not because you have wowed them with how much you know but because of the way that you have sacrificially loved them. So what does this look like in the context of our church? How do we provide safe environments to have spiritual conversations with with one another and especially where non-Christians can come in? Well, as as a church, some of the environments we we currently provide for this kind of spiritual dialogue include Sunday school, uh, Bible studies throughout the week, community groups, and if you participate in those, then remember that that we never want to look down on anybody, Christian or non-Christian, because of the questions they ask. Right? And it's one thing to say, but it's another thing to really do. It's like, man, if you've been to a community group for 10 years and then someone new shows up and asks questions, do not roll your eyes when they ask some question about anything. Do not make anybody feel stupid or don't try to. Um, You know, well, this is what I'm asking you as a church and as leaders and teachers of groups, allow time and space in different environments for questions and dialogue. It's very important. Um, additionally, we can provide safe and loving environments, right, at a, at a smaller level. Just uh, you know, having a cup of coffee with somebody, either inviting them to your house or going over to a, a, a coffee shop and, and, and talking to them about the Lord. And and telling others maybe what our lives were like before we met Jesus, and then telling others how kind of our story, how and when we trusted in Jesus. Telling others, you know, this this is the one I kind of wrestle with. This, you know, some people will then say, "Well, tell others what how life has been since you met Jesus." Well, I'll tell you what, my life has been hard (laughs) since I met Jesus, and I think that's right in line with what Jesus says in Scripture too. And so I don't think we have to pretend. Wow, I accepted Jesus. My life is like easy now it's not the case this is the truth though I could testify over and over again about the Lord's sustaining grace in times of difficulty and the hope I have now that I did not have before okay and so um and then and then honestly after we share our stories with people too I mean um then we can talk about why is Why is this only possible to know God this way? Because of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus, right? And so what I'm trying to do for all of us here is try to take a little bit of the fear and trepidation out of sharing the gospel with others and thinking of it more in terms of conversations and relationships rather than I get one shot and I'm gonna proclaim the gospel and that's it, right? It's more like, you know what, maybe I should take time and just listen to somebody. Just, I would love just to hear your story. What's your story? Um, and, and so anyways, that's, that's an important thing to do. And in the context of that, you know, hopefully if you listen to somebody else, they'll let you, they'll listen to you a little bit too. And you can tell them how Jesus has helped you and what he's done for you. Um, I'll move on to the third point I was gonna say about apologetics. And it's, it's this, that as Christians... We, we must know what we believe and we must know why we believe it, okay? We must know what we believe and why we believe it. Doesn't, I'm not talking about exhaustively understanding everything in the Bible or why God does what he is, why, why he does what he does. But if you do not know what you believe as a Christian, then how can you tell non-Christians what you believe? And if you do not know why you believe what you believe, how can you tell non-Christians why you believe it? To know what we believe and to know why we believe it is extremely important and it requires us to read the Bible and to listen to the Bible and to memorize the Bible and to know what God says in the Bible about the perfection and power of the Bible. Okay, and I'm gonna get more into this next week because he goes to the Bereans next week um, or in my next sermon, and, uh, and we'll talk more about that. But for now, I just, I'll say that really, I think all of us should have a goal of growing in our knowledge of God's Word. Growing in our knowledge of God's Word, one step at a time, one morning at a time, one evening at a time, a little at a time. Our country is more biblically illiterate than we've ever been. And if we as the church do not value God's word, if we as Christians do not read God's word, if we as Christians do not pass on God's word to the people around us and to future generations, then why should we expect anything else than to see our country and world go to hell? That's the truth. (laughs) If we don't value God and his word, why would we expect non-Christians to? God, would you help us to value you and your word? Right? And to esteem it and to hold it high and to learn how to, how to read it and, and how to claim your promises and, and to value it, God, as, as um, light before our feet and a lamp into our path. Right? Or, Thy word is a light unto my feet and a lamp to my path, right? Thinking about that may it, be, may it be like honey to our lips. And may God, may the Holy Spirit put that desire in us. Because the Bible is God's breathed out word. And Jesus says we need it. We need it. It's our daily bread. It's, and not only for our own subs- sustenance, but we also need it to show Christians what God has to, or show non-Christians what God has to say to them. Right? I mean, this is, so if you're ever doing counseling, I mean, this is one thing I'm learning about when people come to you and they have hard questions about life and God. I'm so thankful that, uh, I don't have to be 75 years old to give them a 75 years worth of of wisdom. Ultimately what they need is for me to be able to open up the Bible and show them how God speaks to that issue of their life. Because they don't ultimately need the pastor who knows everything, but the pastor who can show them, point them in the right direction to what God says. And that's what you need too. We can have conversations with people that's great, but at the end of the day, we don't want, well, I think this, I think that. We really should say, and this is what God has revealed to us, and this is what God says. That's what we want to present to people. Um, and, and studying the Bible and learning from, uh, I would say, we, besides studying the Bible, I would encourage you, maybe this year, to read, find and read one book. They have short books, they have big books, on Christian apologetics. Uh, this is one of the greatest burdens I have for the next generation of teenagers to know as when they're 16 now and entering college. Do you know why, this, why Jesus of Scripture is reliable and trustworthy and true even though you're gonna sit in a class with 90 people and your teacher says that Jesus is not reliable and trustworthy and true, Right? We get 16 years, and we as adults, do we, we need to answer questions in a different way now than, than 100 years ago. How do we know the Bible that we have in 2018 is the same Bible they had 2,000 years ago? How, how can there be only one true God if there are hundreds of religions in the world? How do we reconcile the Bible with science? How do you know that Jesus really rose from the dead? How could a good God allow suffering? All of these kind of things we want to dive into, right? Because it's stuff for us too. We answer those questions. Those are good questions to ask and so I guess if I were going to point you in the right direction I would say man on our website if you go to the about section you can scroll down and see resources we have under apologetics two books that come to my mind though I always like I think honestly I try to point people to smaller books than bigger books the case for Christ student edition (laughs) is a great book and there's a short book called the five minute apologist five minute readings on apologetics and, and then there's a million other books that Dylan or I or our elders would love to point you to but, but um, I would encourage you to dive into that because we have to answer questions that we've never had to answer quite with such urgency I would think in our culture that are important and um, we can answer them with, with scripture and with the cool thing is this, the further we get away from the, the cross, the more historical the more historically reliable we see it is, the gospels. The more manuscripts they're finding every day that validate everything we've always thought. And so there's so many tools uh, that we have to help us. And so as Christians, we wanna utilize those. Um, All right, let me move ahead here. so we read in verse 4 that, that as Paul proclaimed the gospel, he was using reason, explanation, and proof. And it says some of the Jews were persuaded. They joined Paul and Silas. In other words, they trusted in the Lord, and they joined Paul and Silas as of this church, this new church now that's forming in Thessalonica. And in addition, it says some of the Jews, um, oh, sorry, in addition to some of the Jews who became Christians, a great many of the devout Greeks believed the gospel, including not a few of the leading women in that city who had great influence. So, so what we see here, again, is, is once again the gospel of Jesus, this, this message, it turns, a, it turns into family a bunch of people who would otherwise be separated by society's divisions. Men and women, old and young, rich and poor, influential, not influential, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free. Okay? And they're all on level ground now. Okay. So when you go to church, this means, this is, I mean, think about this, get, this in the, get in the Roman world. It means the slaves don't have to sit in back, they can sit in front. Nowhere else in society was that happening. I mean, this is, this is so cool, what God was doing here. And this is, the church is Galatians 3.28, lived out. See what Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the spirit of God, the spirit of Jesus, he's doing something awesome here in Thessalonica. He's making people born again through faith. He's transforming lives in this huge city. And as expected though, this is the track record. Whenever God moves in a powerful way, Satan follows right on his heels to try to destroy that work. And that's the case here in Thessalonica. Let's read Acts 17, 5-9. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So, so this is kind of a replay of what we saw happen back in Pisidian Antioch. Uh, the majority of the Jews when the gospel was preached, didn't believe. um, And they were jealous and they were outraged now that Jews and Gentiles are both being welcomed into what Paul is saying, the church, calling the church God's people. And and the Jews formed this mob of wicked men and they eventually, uh, essentially they started this riot, a violent riot on the city streets in a major city. Think of like what we've seen in Seattle or Los Angeles, a major riot. And the mob came, it, it, it comes to this house of this guy named Jason. He was either a Christian or he was just a man open to hearing about Jesus. And he had let Paul and Silas and Timothy stay at his house. And the mob then, it says, starts attacking his house. And they're looking for Paul and Silas. They're hoping to hurt them at least, probably to kill them. But Paul and Silas weren't there. And so the mob dragged Jason and some of the other new Christians to the city authorities. Now, how ironic it is that this mob which has just torn up the city all the way to the place of the authorities now accuses Paul and Silas of turning the world upside down right they weren't the ones leading the mob and these Thessalonians they, they had likely heard about all the mob violence that Paul and Silas had already endured in previous cities and this mob tells the authorities that, that Jason is guilty of welcoming Paul and Silas All the Christians are purposely disobeying Caesar's decrees, and specifically, they accuse Paul and Silas of teaching that there is another king greater than Caesar. And when the authorities heard this, it says they were disturbed, because anybody who purposely rebelled against the leader of the Roman Empire, Caesar, was guilty of treason. Those were people who got crucified, okay? but Thankfully, these authorities of Thessalonica appear to use responsible judgment, and they simply require Jason and the Christians to post bond, and then they release him. And this, this violent mob had heard Paul teach that Jesus is king, and that's true. Jesus is the king. But during his ministry, remember, Jesus did not teach his followers to rebel against Caesar in order to honor King Jesus. Jesus taught his disciples to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God what is God's. And and the Holy Spirit would later move Paul to write a letter to Christians in Rome about how Christians should honor both God and the leaders of the government. And ultimately, though, If the government tries to make Christians disobey God and his word, then Christians must disobey the government in order to obey God because God is the higher authority. It's crucial for us to remember that the ruler to which we are ultimately and eternally accountable is Jesus Christ, our Savior. The king we're accountable to is the one who laid down his life to save us. And Jesus told us not to be ultimately afraid of those who can jail us, not to be ultimately afraid of those who can kill us, but we should ultimately be afraid of God because he's the one who can throw people into hell. That was the reason Jesus gave. And God is is infinitely massive, he is astonishingly powerful, and this, this massive and powerful God is your God and your friend if you're in Jesus. That's, that's really good news for you, that Jesus is the high king and he's your savior. And so besides this reality that Jesus rules and reigns over everything right now, what does he want from us? What does he as the king want from us? What does it look like for us to believe that Jesus is the king? What does it look like for us to fear God in a good way as the king? How does this play out in our lives? Well, as the heavenly king, God rightly wants us to bring him glory because it would be sinful of us not to ascribe glory to the one thing in the universe that is most glorious. Does that make sense? It would be sinful not to give glory to the one thing that most deserves glory and attention and worship. And so, how do we bring glory to the Lord? Well, Jesus says, by loving the Lord with all your hearts and minds and souls and strength. It means we delight in, in Jesus and in what he's done for us. It means that we want Jesus to have kingship over every area of our lives. We want him to rule over every part of our lives, internally and externally. We want to do what King Jesus has told us to do, in his word, the Bible. We wanna obey Jesus in the way we do homework and in the way that we play with others and in the way we share our things with others. We wanna obey Jesus in the way that we run our businesses and in the way that we teach our classrooms and in the way that we interact with other guys at the fire station. And we want to obey Jesus, our King, in the way that we point our spouses and kids to Jesus and in the way that we serve our families and in the way that we confess sin and give forgiveness and in the way that we give generously to King Jesus' church. We want to obey Jesus in the way we watch TV, play video games, and drive our cars. 1 Corinthians Okay, I'll, I'll say a funny thing that just came to my mind. So I was riding this on, on the plane ride home from Indianapolis. And uh, I get a text message on my phone. And Cindy said, how did you get that? You're getting texts and I'm not. I said, "Uh, oh, I didn't put mine in airplane mode. <laughs> You're supposed to put it in airplane mode. I was a little bit of a rebel. And I didn't put mine in, in airplane mode. And so I said, well, I'm preaching on uh, Render under.'" render to caesar what is caesar's and render what to god what is god's render to alaska airlines what is alaska airlines and so i better follow the rules i need to shut this off right now because first corinthians 10 31 says this whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do it all for the glory of god other verses say work as though you're not working for people but as for the lord in whatever you do so so how do we know how, how, how we can glorify God most clearly in all of life's situations? Well, for starters, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I think this is what Jesus says, we have to know his word. We have to read the Bible and find out. Through his word, God speaks to every area of our lives for our temporary good, for our eternal good, and for the glory of his name. And, and as we read the commands of God in scripture, as we read his perfect law, we, we thank Jesus and worship him also for being the one who fulfilled the law for us. So we're not saved by our performance, we're saved by Jesus' performance, and now we're freed to chase after his holiness without fear of being sent to hell. We thank Jesus that on the cross, he not only suffered for and forgave all the ways we've disobeyed him, but also he replaced the sinfulness that was in us with the righteousness that is in him. And so everyone who trusts in Jesus is now the righteousness of God in God's eyes. We have to be careful when we preach the gospel because it is so such good news that we're not saved by our works. And at the same time, Paul wrestled with this too. We don't want to preach, well, you're saved So now live however you want. God did not free us from sin so that we would go chase sin. God freed us from sin so that we might not sin. So for the first time in our lives we wouldn't be chained to sin, we could pursue holiness. When we love God and we glorify God and when we rejoice in him and in his word and being transformed into his likeness by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's what brings him glory. That's what we wanna do in alignment with the scripture. So, so yes, Jesus is king. Yes, his kingdom has already come, but it has not yet come in its fullness. It will when he returns. But in the meantime, this is what Jesus is doing. He's turning our world upside down, the best possible way, through spirit-filled people. When humanity brought sin into the world, we were the ones who turned the world upside down and introduced death, disease, and separation into our existence. So by turning the world upside down through his people, Jesus is actually turning the world right side up again. He's making all things new. He's making things the way they should be. He's pushing back the darkness in our lives. And whenever we see his gracious hand work in the lives of people, whether we're, people we re- read about in his word or throughout church history or in our lives, what we're seeing is a glimpse of the total freedom and perfect eternal life that we have coming very soon. When God gives us grace, we see glimpses of eternal heaven. And we will meet him very soon face to face, either when our lives end or when he comes back, which could happen first. And so, what Jesus said is, is uh, transitioning now is, he wants us to remember that he is on the throne, that he has died for us as the Lamb of God, and that he is coming again. And he told us, until I come again, I want you to proclaim these truths regularly as you take communion together as a church. This is, this is why we take communion. And, and so, as the servers come forward, what we wanna do is have a moment of silence for each one of us individually to, to, to thank the Lord for his grace in our lives, to confess sins to him if we need to, and uh, just to, to lift him high. And so what we'll do is we'll just take a minute or two of silence for each one of you to talk to the Lord uh, as you feel led as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Lord Jesus, we thank you for tearing the veil down that separated us from you. Thank you, God, for sending your son, Jesus, to die for us so that we might have communion with you, Lord. Thank you for being the forgiver of our sins. Thank you for being our king and our savior at the same time. We love you and pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.